Welcome back to another episode of The Parlor, a conversation about rhetoric with rhetoricians. Today, we'll be talking with Ryan Skinnell, with additional voices from Yasmin El Raba and Brett Glasscock. Dr. Ryan Skinnell is an assistant professor of rhetoric and composition at St. Jose University. He earned his PhD at Arizona State University, and his current research focuses on political and public discourse and rhetoric. He's an author of five books and numerous essays on rhetoric, and today we are focused on his 2018 essay, What Passes for Truth in the Trump Era, Telling It Like It Isn't. So just to get things started, just wanted to ask you, you know, much of your work sort of explores political and public rhetoric. In broad strokes, how did you get interested in these topics? What drew you to them to get your work started on them? I used to have a job before I moved to San Jose State. I was at the University of North Texas, so just up the road from you guys. And I had worked on a book, written a book, published a book on history of composition, and it was finished, and then I got this job and moved to California. So I was sort of like in a moment of of break, um, and Donald Trump came out and uh, announced his candidacy. And over the course of the time between when I left UNT and when I got to San Jose State, we had cycled through, you know, like the Muslim ban and Mexicans are rapists and this, that, and the other. Um, and it seemed to me an, an auspicious time. I had the time and the freedom to write about something new. Donald Trump was in the news. Um, and so I, I, you know, follow, I am interested in and have followed politics and political rhetoric for a long time, but hadn't really actually done a, a tremendous amount of work in it. But I did at that time. And so I wrote an article that was published in the Washington Monthly about Donald Trump. And that turned into an invitation to do a conference paper. And that turned into basically this book. I mean, it started as a conference paper. Um, with some of the other contributors, and then we invited a bunch of other people in, and that's sort of how I got here. So your work in political rhetoric really began with the Trump campaign then, and sort of how it's played out over the past few years? Yeah, and the argument of that that first essay that I published was everybody says nobody will vote for Trump because all he does is talk about chaos, and my argument was actually that that's the draw, like that's what people are excited about when they're drawn to Trump. So that's where it all started. You know, as students of the principles of rhetoric, I feel like we have a lot to learn from you. We have a lot to learn from Trump's rhetoric. You wrote what passes for truth in the Trump era about this whole issue of truth in Trump's rhetoric and how in spite of his lying, people really buy into what he's saying. I wanted to call attention to this Joe Walsh tweet that you mentioned. Walsh says, they all lie, all politicians lie, Obama lied, Hillary lied, Trump's at least open and honest about his lying. And this quote implies some startling realizations about Trump supporters, namely that they're unconvinced that Trump's lying is a problem. So our question for you is, what makes his lies different from other politicians and why are they so convincing? With politicians generally, when they lie, if they get caught lying, 
then they have to walk it back and they send out their people and their people say, well, you know, it's taken out of context or we didn't really mean that or um, he just had the wrong information. When Trump lies, he just keeps lying and keeps lying and keeps lying. And somebody says, but that like factually impossible. And they say, well, yeah, you know, but uh, you, you have to trust his feelings. So like Trump's lying. Uh, the more he lies, the more believable he is because he just seems so incapable of lying, right? Like he's just, he's so authentic. That's the word that they, that his supporters use a lot, right? Is he's authentic. Um, he, he speaks from the gut. And so sometimes he doesn't have the numbers and sometimes he doesn't have the facts, but boy, he really speaks from the, the gut, and that's what we value about him is this visceral truth, even if the actual words he says are wrong, lies, treasonous, uh, <laughs> whatever. It doesn't matter. What matters is it's like, you know, he feels it and he can't even stop feeling it. I'm kind of curious how that interacts with some of these big name interviews that we're starting to see with Trump, like Jonathan Swan on Axios, where people are really starting to push back on his lies and say, no, that's not what happens. But, you know, he continues to just be so passionate in these mistruths and assert that they are the absolute reality. And I'm wondering how your thesis about the different quality of his lies is evolving over time as people are pushing more back on it. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to push back. Part of the... Um, one of the things I talk about in the chapter, but really one of the major challenges of the Trump administration is that the press is not equipped and has not been equipped for you know decades to really push back on him as a liar, right? Because he's the president of the United States. And even before he was the president of the United States, he's a presidential candidate. And the, the press in America for a long time has been sort of trained to defer, to be deferential, um, to say, okay, well, we're not sure that's true, but we'll check, right? We'll go, we'll do the fact checking and we'll, I'm not gonna sit here on TV and call you a liar to your face because you're the president of the United States. And that just, it's rude. So I'm just not gonna do that. And so he's gotten away with a lot of things. And by the time, you know, if he says like Muslim immigrants, they've come here illegally and as a consequence, they've raised crime statistics, which is factually untrue. The interviewer says, well, I'm not sure that's true. We'll check it out and we'll post it later. So they go and they do the research. And even if they wait 20 minutes to post that lie, to say, no, this is not true, it's a lie. He's already lied 50 times in that 20 minutes. There's this like stacking up of lies and it makes it, you know, uh, Steve Bannon called it flooding the zone. Um, if you're in, if you've been involved in uh, debate, it's called the Gish Gallop, right? You just like keep slamming people with as much information as you can. And if they can't keep up, well, not, not my fault. Um, but then when Jonathan Swan comes on and he says, that's a lie, that's a lie, how dare you say that, that's a lie, 
that takes a lot of preparation and it takes a lot of work on the part of journalists. Um, and I think it's great and it should have been happening for a long time. And we just have not, our press has just not been in a position to do that. Um, and, but even when they do that, there are such separate media uh, spheres that if you're a Donald Trump supporter, you could legitimately go and watch nothing but political news for a week and have no idea that that interview happened, right? You can get media that tells you all the good stuff about him and none of the bad stuff about him. And that, I don't know how we solve that problem. Um, I kind of wanted to hit on something you talk about in your article because you sort of introduce uh, the framework of the Parisia and uh, how it applies or doesn't apply uh, to Donald Trump. And I was just wondering if you could offer a brief definition of Parisia and maybe expand a little bit upon why it's a useful tool for understanding Trump's rhetoric and how it may or may not help in combating his lies and mistruths. So Parisia at its very base, Parisia is frank and fearless speech. So frank or fearless speech, which requires frankness, obviously, risk or danger for the speaker, an unwavering duty to society, and the expression of fundamental truths. So it, it is um, a commitment to truth that is so important that the speaker is willing to suffer as a consequence of those things for the good of society in particular. Um, and a lot, in a lot of ways, Trump can appear as such, right? He, he certainly speaks candidly, uh, frankly. Um, he potentially speaks, he says he's speaking fearlessly, right? So when he was on the, on the um, campaign trail in 2015, 2016, he's, you know, I make a billion dollars and I don't need this and I'm willing to give all my money and I'll lose all my credibility and it doesn't matter because I'm willing to give that all up for uh, America. Now, that's probably not in fact true. Um, there are lots of, of news stories and, and things like that that were reporting that he was angling to make money and to put himself in a position to like start his own uh, media empire, for example. So the, the truth of him being like fearless seems sort of unlikely. And the expression of fundamental truths, and this is the one that I think is the really important one, that what Parisia helps us understand is the way that truth can in fact circulate in ways that are not true. Speaking frankly, oftentimes, um, and, and this is what Trump does, right? Speaking frankly, oftentimes it's like, in the heat of the moment, I just feel compelled to do this. And I haven't done the research necessarily, and I haven't uh, sat down and scripted out what I'm gonna say. I just, I'm so moved by the need to speak that I'm willing to be wrong. I'm willing to be like factually wrong in order to express this really deep, uh, compelling demand to speak, right? And it's easy to have that one aspect of Parisia stand in for the other three, 
if you do that one really well and you're really um, engaging and persuasive as somebody who just feels moved to speak, it can be easy to overlook that maybe you're not fearless. Maybe you're not, uh, don't have any real duty to society. And maybe it's not frankness. Maybe it's just flat out lying. Right? And all of that stuff can be disguised by passion. And so I think that actually helps us understand in a lot of ways what's happening. And, and it also helps us understand um, some stuff that didn't make it into the, the Trump article is that a lot of the like really major criticisms of Hillary Clinton on one of the major criticisms was that she was too test marketed. You know, she had gone and given six versions of her speech at a advertising company, and then they would tell her which one most people reacted to. Now, if what you believe is that your president should be well-prepared, well-trained, and well-oriented to speak to as many people as possible, then she's test-marketed is a thing we should want. If she's test-marketed, it means that she's not passionate. It means that she's not speaking from the gut. It means that she's not moved. She's too cerebral. She's too detail-focused. She's too policy-oriented. She's too planned. And Trump isn't that. He speaks from the gut. He's got, oh, he's got, oh. Uh, there's no word for that, right? It's like, oh, oh I love the way he, oh. I, I, do I cut that out or? And, and so I, you know, that, that to me sort of brings to the fore the way that he's valued and the way that his speaking is valued. And so then if he's, um, if he says silly things, right? The other day he gave a, a press conference where he called Yosemite Yosemite. Um, he's reading off this thing. He's talking about Yosemite, Yosemite. Right? He never pronounced it correctly. Yosemite is one of the most famous natural uh, landmarks in the country, and he still never figured out how to pronounce it that I can tell. Um, and that's okay, right? That is a thing that appeals to people who want authenticity and will take authenticity as more important than factual correctness. Isn't there an extent to which those characteristics, that passion, that is embodied in Trump as Parisha turns fully into demagoguery? Like, where, where do we draw that line? Mm -hmm. So if you go back to the Joe Walsh thing, right, all politicians lie. All politicians are telling mistruths. At least Trump is honest about his lying, right? So if everybody's doing it, if we can't trust anybody, the only person we can really trust is the person who is the most untrustworthy. Yeah, so it almost sounds like his passion, even if they are a passion for lies and his own personal reality, overrides everything and becomes its own kind of truth that his supporters buy into. You know, I, I'm an academic rhetorician. I teach, I write academic articles, and I have spent now 15 years or so reading and studying this stuff. And one of the, the sort of central things that I value because of those commitments is logic, reason. And I value those things, but they're very much academic values. And they are not the values that, that exist in argument in the world. 
right? Um, when we go home or we go to parties or we go to restaurants or we go and have a conversation with a friend at a coffee shop or whatever, we're so willing to invest in each other's emotional needs and passionate commitments and occasionally we'll say, whoa, 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 pal, your evidence on that argument is incorrect, insufficient to the claim that you're making. Um, but really, like, argument in the world is passionate and it is uh, deeply invested in people's ethos, right? They're, they're personal characteristics that make them believable, trustworthy, whatever. And we have a tendency, and I don't think we all do this, but I think there is a very clear tendency in rhetoric to dismiss those things as outside or illegitimate, right? Outside of the realm of legitimate argumentation. And so we're really good at understanding argument in a lot of ways. And we're really bad in some ways at valuing how argument actually works in the world. And so when somebody like Hillary Clinton comes along, we've got all the tools because she plays by the set of rules that we say are important. And when somebody like Donald Trump comes along, our tools are weak. They're not useless, but they're weak. And they miss so many of the things, so many of the people, so many of the ways that the persuasion actually works. Along that same vein, um, you know, we can contrast the way political journalists and Trump supporters evaluate Trump's rhetoric. But can we make better sense of Trump's message if we evaluate his rhetoric as followers do, like in a good faith sense? Yes, I think we can. So Trump is one of the other authors in the book, Jen Wingard, who's at the University of Houston. Um, she argues that Trump is basically one bad apple in a much bigger barrel of bad apples. Like his policies, Trump's policies are sort of extreme versions of very mainstream Republican orthodoxy for 50 years, right? If you go back into the 80s and you look at what Ronald Reagan is talking about and you look at what um, congressional Republicans are talking about, it's the same stuff. He's a little bit grandiose in his vision. Right? Policy-wise, it's not terribly different. And so I think part of what, what trying to understand rhetoric, uh, is trying to understand Trump's rhetoric in terms of his followers' needs and beliefs and values and all those things does, is it points us to the ways that we've been blind to what's happening in the world that we live in for a long time. And I'll give you a much more specific example. Um, if you're following the news, you know that Trump is intentionally and willfully trying to destroy the post office. Right? He's made it perfectly clear that this is what he's after, and he has put people in place who will make it work worse in order to uh, sell off the parts to private industry and secure his reelection. The law that came into being that made all of that possible was co-sponsored by congressional Democrats and congressional Republicans. The Republicans couldn't have done it without the congressional Democrats. Even if there is no way in which you find yourself uh, ideologically aligned with Trump, 
if you are aligned with American politics at all, you have a part to play in this. And you have had a part to play in this forever. And at least part of your part to play in it has been thinking about how you vote, thinking about how you um, do or don't participate in civic um, responsibilities. Like it's easy to vote for the person with the D by their name and assume that they won't become Trump. But the, the Democrats and progressives, I mean, there's nobody who's, who gets off free on this. A lot of what has happened in the last 40 years has been people who are sort of checked out to politics because it's too hard and it's too time consuming and it's too um, complicated. And so just like, well, I'll check the D's or I'll check the R's. And that's how we've gotten to where we are. It's that if you just are in the habit of checking the R's and for 40 years, the R's go right further and further right and further and further right. And at some point they end up being fascists, which I'm not saying they are. I'm saying it's a possibility. Um, like at that point, it's really hard to turn around and decide you're going to vote for the other team. Because you've invested a lot of time and a, a lot of identity and a lot of value in that. The R, right? So that's what I think we have to learn from Trump. So if I'm understanding right, it sounds like you're getting at kind of two issues that Trumpism reveals. First being like the rightward shift of the American center as more far-right neoliberal policies are considered normal and even being integrated into democratic platforms. But then at the same time, the way that the establishment in America and how we typically conceptualize politics isn't able to deal with really passionate um, emotional, that ugh, gut rhetoric of Trump. And, you know, the combination of those two problems isn't super uplifting. It doesn't paint a very pretty picture. Um, but you've talked about how we can expand our toolbox for dealing with these problems. And I was wondering what that looks like to you. Like, where do we go from here and fight the intersection of these two issues? There's lots of, of parts of this answer, and so I'm probably going to not, I'm going to give them short shrift. One is that right off the bat, immediately, what we need to understand, irrespective of where we are on the political spectrum, that where we are today in, in American politics is a consequence of at least 50 years of activism, particularly on, on the right. Um, leftist activism, and I mean left, including Democrats, right? So including sort of mainstream establishment Democrats and further left. Left-wing activism has been really hard for at least, since at least the mid-60s. Um, and part of the reason is that so many people are represented by the left, right? So you have people from lots of different backgrounds, lots of different desires, lots of different needs fighting over uh, the, the platforms, right? So, you know, like I've got lots of, of friends across this sort of left spectrum on my Facebook feed right now fighting over whether or not Kamala Harris is a good vice presidential candidate right? Because Biden just picked her in case you missed the news. And 
some people will look at that and some people do look at that and say, that is a sign of division. And I look at that and I say, that is a sign of democracy. Democracy should be lots of fighting. It should be people genuinely disagreeing. You guys are UT, so if you've taken classes with Trish Roberts Miller, you've gotten this line of thought, right? That like, arguing's good, but it takes a long time, right? It takes a lot of years. As that's happened on the left, on the right, they have consolidated points of view around two things in particular, around tax relief and around removal of government um, oversight. And it's much easier if you have an electorate that agrees on two things and is willing to forget everything else. It's much easier to get a coalition. You don't need a coalition. You just like anybody can come along as long as they keep their mouth shut and just focus on these two things. And the Democrats can't do that. So one thing is the Democrats have to be better. Democrats and progressives uh, need to be better about figuring out how to build coalitions that value lots of different people. But they're doing that sort of in the moment as the Republicans have consolidated their view of what politics is. Number two, Democrats have, you know, as that's happened, Democrats have have sort of um, given up the center. They say, you know, like, we should compromise. Compromise is a democratic value. I believe, com- I'm, I'm with that, right? I accept the Democrat, that compromise is a democratic value. But oftentimes what that's meant for Democrats is that Republicans say, we're setting the line here. And the Democrats say, okay, we'll meet you in the middle over here. That the Republicans are like, well, oh, just kidding, we're over here. And the Democrats are like, oh, oh, the middle moved. Okay, I'll go with it. I'll go with it. Um, and so the Democrats have to figure out how they're going to drag that back the other direction. Um, and they're starting to, right? Particularly if you look at like the young, uh, the squad, the squad. There's lots of things to disagree with the squad about, but they, in a lot of ways, have a really savvy understanding of democracy and of argument and of compromise that is not merely like, oh, the middle moved, let's go find it. We need to commit ourselves to a democracy if we're going to be a democracy. And that means a much broader vision of what it what will allow, right? Because a really strong democracy in the 1950s is all good and well, except like half the people in the country aren't allowed to use it. That's not great. <laughs> so like we if if we want a strong democracy we're going to have to build it cuz it's never quite existed and we're going to have to build it in a way that is savvy and engaged and it can't just be checking the D or checking the R every 4 years and hoping that'll solve the problem. This podcast was produced by me, Benjamin Pomerantz with voices from Ryan Scannell, Brett Glasscock, and Yasmin Elrava. Thank you to the Digital Writing and Research Lab for making this podcast possible. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong to the speakers alone and not to the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin.